Thanks for joining us. I'm Alan Burke, a landscape architect here in the Puget Sound region, and you are listening to the Green Meridian Podcast. Years ago, I was asked to weigh in on a new landscape architectural practice law. There was proposed state legislation at that time that would have made certain kinds of residential landscape design illegal unless the practitioner had an L.A. license. You'd think that I'd be for it. After all, as an L.A. myself, it would have made my livelihood even more exclusive. But I couldn't in good conscience support it because I don't honestly believe that there is such a marked distinction between the two trades, at least in residential landscape design. Oh, to be honest, I wish there were, but the facts just don't bear this out. The fact is, there's a wide discrepancy in knowledge and ability in both directions. You can, of course, find a very skilled professional PhD level landscape architect that can detail out a sophisticated plan set and contrast this with a landscape designer that is finding planting selections at random from the Sunset Western landscaping book and scrawling ideas on the back of a napkin. But conversely, a client might invest thousands on a completely useless package from a licensed landscape architect that doesn't spend much time outside, only to build an on-budget paradise later with the help of a garden designer that has years of experience in horticulture. My point is that no one has a hammerlock on knowledge, and these distinctions between the two similar but differing disciplines are what we want to drill into today. In the public's view, the most critical distinction is usually that landscape architects work in a commercial sensibility and landscape designers work more solely on residences. This is not really the case anymore. With the growing success of sophisticated design build companies, you'll often find that in many instances, a design build landscape designer can be more versed in construction methodology and unit costs with an eye on availability and appropriateness of materials, where a landscape architect might be relegated to an office environment and a more divorced from that kind of knowledge overall. Again, this is not always the case, but can certainly be more common than you might think. Conversely, a landscape architect is expected to be versed in the nuances of topography and drainage, codes and permitting issues, the details necessary in certain kinds of plans with regard to fine grading, irrigation and lighting, plan alignments, framing decks, and detailing specialty construction. This might be more commonly the case with landscape architects, and is an expected part of the services that they can potentially offer. Let's talk for a moment about the differences in costs and fees between the two trades. We've talked before about the investment that a client will make with the designer and how this can vary widely across the board, depending on the individual offering the design and the project management package, and how this kind of work is choreographed into the overall effort for the client. Common investment packages for landscape architectural design for a homeowner might include a lump sum rate to include a plan with or without estimates, and perhaps including or not including a revision or two. Other ways of working include the designer charging the client a percentage of the overall construction, a relatively common practice that I'm disinclined to advise any clients to approve. 
I know that it's a matter for each individual to decide, but I struggle with why a client would set themselves up for additional billings when costs increase, even if the designer is the person that caused the increase. That doesn't make any sense. Beyond that, there might be an hourly rate that's stated. Oftentimes, it's an open-ended rate. This does not give the potential client a good sense of what the overall investment really is going to be. Absent this kind of charge, having what we call a not-to-exceed number, I think the best orientation for a homeowner seeking these services is to purchase a lump sum package with an understanding of what the hourly rate is going forward after the package is delivered. We talked about this on another episode and in a blog post at the ClassicNursery.com blog. The title of the blog is What's in Your Package? What about education and licensing? Differences in education start to become evident after the initial two-year degree. Homeowners can expect that in some instances they might be speaking with someone who was completely self-taught and quite skilled, or as I've said before, conversely, it can be consulting with a highly educated individual that is completely incompetent. Most of those seeking to work professionally as landscape designers or landscape architects are going to have to make some kind of investment in education. Again, with the exception of the self-taught individual, we're talking about someone who seeks out a community college program for a two-year degree or perhaps a full university program in landscape architecture. These kinds of investments can range from a few thousand dollars to six figures of investment for an advanced degree. That noted, it's typical for a landscape designer to have at least pursued a two-year degree from a community college in order to gain some kind of landscape designer status professionally. They might also be members of trade organizations such as APLD or ASLA. A landscape architect, conversely, would typically have at least a four-year degree and should actually have a license number that is registered with the state. With this in mind, some landscape architects will also have a master's degree or higher with the corresponding education. Landscape architectural licenses require an accredited degree and three years of practical experience working under a licensed LA. That doesn't mean that every licensed landscape architect comes to the work as a result of a lengthy academic degree. For those pursuing landscape architecture without the attendant degree, this requires at least eight years of field experience, with two years of which that can be education related, and six years of which must be under the supervision of a landscape architect. In this way, landscape designers that seek a landscape architectural license can apply without benefit of the landscape architectural formal education. This involves a more rigorous review process and successful completion of the LARE or the Landscape Architectural Registration Exam. So if you're a landscape design professional, what are some of the restrictions on your practices? One of the most evident areas of difference is the actual state mandated restrictions for select types of plans to be signed off by a landscape architect with a stamp. This will usually be a plan that is commercial submittal for mitigation or environmental remediation, sometimes an HOA covenant or some other type of plan requirement, rarely for a residential landscape plan. What though is the actual distinction many uh, that talk about don't actually know. So, so bear with me as we throw on our nerd hat and wade into some legal jargon. According to the Washington state law, Landscape architecture, quote, means the rendering of professional services in connection with consultations, investigations, reconnaissance, research, planning, design, 
construction document preparation, construction administration, or teaching supervision in connection with the development of land areas where the dominant purpose of such services is the preservation, enhancement, or determination of proper land uses, natural land features, ground cover and planting, naturalistic and aesthetic values, the settings and approaches to structures or other improvements, or natural drainage and erosion control. This practice includes the location, design, and arrangement of such tangible objects as pools, walls, steps, trellises, canopies, and such features, and involves the design and arrangement of landforms and the development of outdoor space, including but not limited to the design of public parks, trails, playgrounds, cemeteries, home and school grounds, and the development of industrial and recreational sites." Unquote. Importantly, this does not prevent or preclude, quote, the construction, alteration, or supervision of sites by contractors or superintendents employed by contractors or the preparation of shop drawings or owner or contractors engaging persons who are not landscape architects to observe and supervise site construction of a project. In addition, qualified professional biologists providing services for natural site areas are precluded. The preparation of construction documents, including planting plans, landscape materials, or other horticultural related elements, and any individuals making plans, drawings, or specs for any property owned by them or for their personal use, and very importantly, the design of irrigation systems and landscape designs on residential properties. For those that are starting out or considering a mid-career change, we're planning an episode about developing a green industry career coming up that will offer some good info and corresponding nudges for you. With regard to those that are looking for landscape design versus landscape architecture information, I would generally ask first what the individual and personal goals are that would be related to their education, the education they're planning to pursue. For someone like that, are you someone who is looking at a full breadth career in landscape design? Are you willing to make the investment and develop a tradable skill in landscape architecture that you might apply commercially or in park design or in some municipal role? Are you someone that's more focused on design build or residential design as a trade? If it's the latter, then I would strongly suggest that you not pursue a landscape architectural degree, if for no other reason than the unnecessary expense. Most residential work that you do will not require the advanced degree, nor will you, your academic experience in landscape architecture assist you that much with the future work overall, in my opinion, at least not much of what you learn. Listen to our podcast episode, The Problem with Landscape Design Education, to get more insight into this. The business skills that you'll need, detailed plant knowledge, and the pragmatic ability to sell your work are simply not taught. A better solution would be to work directly for a design build firm and gain real field experience, focus on horticulture, and develop your CAD drafting skills. Within a few short years, you'll have most of the information you need to be able to pursue a professional career as a landscape designer. You may also have a moderately well-developed portfolio of work that you can use. In my personal opinion, I admire newly developing designers that are enthusiastic about plant materials and the possibilities of building habitat. But honestly and pragmatically, I do think that those pursuing a career in landscape design should consider their earning potential as well and in doing so might take a closer look at design build. It might sound crass, but this brings the designer closer to the money. Is that important? I think it is. 
Think of two companies that operate at a 20% net profit margin, a landscape designer versus a landscape contractor. Looking at what a 200,000 project, for example, means, a designer might be paid up to $5,000 or so for a mix of drawings and project management, earning a potential 20% net profit of $1,000. This is a respectable contract. However, consider the contractor though. Her contract is for $200,000. That net profit might be $40,000. That can provide a good bit of earning wherewithal for a design-build landscape designer. Regardless of your specific achievements in professional development, you should definitely pursue the networking potential that comes with membership in a trade organization that is aligned to your profession. Here in the Puget Sound, we have basically four different organizations that lend themselves to the landscape design industry. APLDWA is the landscape design organization that is best. It's based upon the National APLD or Association of Professional Landscape Designers. This body is geared toward residential landscape design primarily. Generally, a well-organized female-centric green industry landscape designer trade organization, you'll find a good networking potential here and a well-organized series of events to consider. The next organization is WASLA, the Washington American Society of Landscape Architects, which is the Association of Landscape Architects for the state. Here you'll find landscape architects from many commercial sensibilities and camaraderie to be found in this kind of networking as well. Other organizations include WALP, the Washington Association of Landscape Professionals, which is a smaller statewide group broken into regional chapters that is mostly tradespeople. Here you'll find a robust discussion around professional contracting and landscape care and maintenance. And finally, I would recommend any green industry professional look into the WSNLA organization. This is the Washington State Nursery and Landscape Association, which is a well-organized group of nursery and green industry tradespeople. They produce an annual meeting that is well-regarded and worth attending. On another note, I might suggest the Center for Urban Horticulture at the University of Washington as a great resource. This is uh, a unique urban academic research center and a treasure trove of horticultural information with demonstration gardens and seminar spaces. Located in the Laurelhurst neighborhood south of the University of Washington, CUH can be found online with ongoing professional seminars and continuing education opportunities. We operate at odds with each other. How can we get into alignment? Personally, I feel like there's an unnecessary rift between landscape designers and landscape architects. Beyond the commercial versus residential aspects of the discussion that we all know, the two facets of our creative work rarely share professional discussions, in particular when we consider trade seminars or commonly fundamental information that we could share. If I was to simplify it and perhaps overstate it a bit, I'd say, Landscape architects think of landscape designers as glorified gardeners that don't understand drawings or construction. And landscape designers think of landscape architects as snooty academics that know little about plants or horticulture. There's an unfortunate element of truth here in both directions, but regardless, this does not serve us very well. We'll be talking in another episode about how our green industry has been hijacked by the chemical trades. But I think the most important thing that we should consider together is how we are addressing the predictable and startlingly devastating effects of climate change. 
and how a mutual approach toward consumer and commercial client education might help tilt environmental outcomes in a more positive direction. Given the upcoming environmental devastation that we're going to be witnessing with regard to annual unprecedented storm damage and fires, smoke in the atmosphere, and the diminishment of critical species, if nothing else was to occur, occur, this is alone a reason for all of us to get on the same page. If we are really to look at our environmental future with a clear eye, there is actually very little we can do to stem the adverse effects that are coming our way. Regardless, we need to do what we can. And who's in a better position than the landscape design community to affect even a nominal change? I think we should go down swinging at least and know in our hearts that we've done all that we can to educate consumers and clients in best practices, IPM and least impact strategies in soil structure, habitat creation, and the proper use of native plant materials. An ecologically centered all industry meeting is in order as soon as possible because we're looking at a situation that is critically developing now, where we've already seen the sudden and immediate diminishment of once common plant species, such as Pinocchi cypress and Jacquemonte birch, alpine fir and mountain hemlock, and other conifers that are dying rapidly. One study tells us that by the turn of the century, we will no longer have western red cedar and Douglas fir at lowland elevations in the Pacific Northwest. Think about that and take a moment to live in that moment and the moment of that impact. This is a striking change that we need to be aware of and take steps to prepare for. This is going to take landscape architects working with landscape designers and nursery professionals as a unified team with a strong stewardship orientation, including garden retailers, suppliers, and other interested parties to underscore a common message and clarify the way forward. We must do this. We need to move away from the idea of chemical spraying being the message of the landscape industry. There are a few areas where common ground could be found and a mutual effort could be undertaken that would have more force and overall effect for us. I would advocate for a critically needed overall green industry conference. Secondly, I think there should be an overall green industry annual trade show annually with a seminar series that is mutually sponsored by APLD, WALP, and WSNLA. This would not only save large expense for each of these financially hard-pressed organizations, but also consolidate industry attendance in such a way that, with an all-industry trade show, we could work together to gather a powerful sponsorships and bring in world-class speakers and invest endowments to help to further the environmental message that we need to be conveying. Finally, I think our own regional green industry trade organization should be consolidated. The current framework is inefficient and kind of ridiculous. Specifically, and we have talked about this many times over the year, WALP and WSNLA should really be compressed into one organization. Many people feel that this kind of consolidation is long overdue, and yet each organization has a monkey fist into its own way of thinking. This needs to change. We have work to do now and we need to do it together. In addition to the environmental climate change issues that are at our doorstep now, we need to speak with a common voice on a variety of other critical issues, including immigration reform, implementation of the precautionary principle, and backing legislation that protects our wetlands and forests. 
We need to be doing the simplest of things that we can do, reinforcing habitat and limiting lawn and doubling down on educating homeowners and commercial clients for creative solutions that will help us to build functional and resilient communities. Think about this. What can you do to move things along? Let's do it. Thanks for listening.